uh, it was in 1843 when Charles Dickens created one of the great literary characters of all time. A man, we all know his name, Ebenezer Scrooge. And we learn about Ebenezer Scrooge in uh, Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, right? This was a man who hated Christmas. Bah humbug, right? But we find, if you've ever read the story itself or seen a faithful adaptation on film, we, we discover Scrooge didn't just hate Christmas. He hated everything. He hated everybody. He only loved his money. Everyone else he held in contempt. And so early on in the story, as Scrooge is there in his counting house, some men come in uh, desiring to collect donations for the poor, to which Scrooge says, well, don't, don't we have prisons and, uh, and poor houses for them to go to? And these men say, well, well yes, but, but many of these people would rather die than end up there. And Ebenezer says, well, if they would rather die, then they better go ahead and do it and decrease the surplus population. Uh, see, here was a man who was very wealthy. He had the means to help those who were in desperate need, but his heart was so black, so cold, that he really didn't care if other people lived or died. That was how low he had a view of, of others, of anybody else, including his own family. And so we look at a famous story like that, and we say, well, Scrooge didn't understand the real meaning of Christmas, right? Which is love and generosity and, and service and joyful giving. And of course, that's true. But let's back up for just a second. Let's, let's come back into the real world for a moment. The meaning of Christmas that I just, discuss, uh, that I just discussed, right? Where did a meaning like that come from in the first place? Because it's something we all know and we all share, and it's not limited only to our country or our culture or the church. Somebody, at some point, I guess, decided that this season in particular was going to be marked by love and service and self-giving and generosity. Who decided that? Well, what I hope we see today from the Scripture, Christmas is not a sentimental holiday designed to bring out the best in us. Christmas, at its root, is a celebration of what God has done in giving his best to us and for us. And that's so good, I'm going to say it again. All right, tweet it. I stole it from somebody, I'm sure, right? Just like everything else. Christmas is not a sentimental holiday designed to bring out the best in us. It's a celebration of what God has done in giving his best to us and for us. And so what we discover when we see the Christmas story, the person of Jesus, we discover that God not only has the power, the means to save those who are otherwise helpless, he also has the heart, the love to bring it about to bring us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so we, if you were with us last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, God's prophecy that he was going to bring light into the darkness by giving us a divine son. Well, today in Philippians 2, this is not a typical Christmas passage perhaps, but Philippians 2 gives us a bigger picture idea of what this really means, of the light coming into the darkness, of God giving us a child, a son, this is big picture stuff we're in right now. We're going to zoom in next week on Bethlehem. We're going to talk more about Mary and Joseph and the angels. And then the week after that, we'll talk about the shepherds and the birth of Christ. 
But we're going to just remain a little bit more big picture today as we talk about what it means for God to take on flesh, for the incarnation of Jesus becoming a man. So in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul begins this passage with a command. This is Philippians 2 verse 3, a clear command for us, the church. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, if we just bottled that command up all by itself, that's really wonderful. I mean, how much better a place would this world be if, if even a quarter of the population obeyed this command, let alone everybody? With humility of mind, regard others more important than yourself. That The world would be changed overnight if people actually obeyed this command. But this command doesn't exist on its own. It can't exist in a bottle all by itself. This command has deep roots in the heart of God, in the heart of Jesus. And so what we end up with here in Philippians 2 is really one of the great mountain peak verses in all the Bible. One of the verses that no matter how much we might study it, we'll never really fully get to the bottom of it. Okay? That's how great it is. And so look at what the command is rooted in, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, this is, if we see the, the way this scripture is written, it's in a sense works from top to bottom, from top on down, okay? So let's follow Paul's direction here as he takes us from the very top down to the very bottom. He tells us, verse 5, verse 6 rather, that Jesus existed in the form of God. Or maybe your translation says, Jesus being in very nature, God. You know, there are many places in the Bible where God takes a man or a woman and anoints them with a special blessing or a special purpose. Okay? All over the Bible, we see stuff like that. We see it in Moses and David and Deborah, Daniel, John the Baptist. The list is long and it's impressive. We can all name people in the Bible that God anoints and blesses and sends out for his special purposes. But that's not what's happening right here. Jesus was not merely a man anointed by God and given a special purpose. No. The scripture tells us that Jesus is in very nature God. Meaning he is of the same substance and the same essence as God. And so all, when, you, when we think about all the immeasurable attributes of God the Father, we also rightly apply those same attributes to Jesus the Son, that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing, unchangeable, and all the rest. Those things are true of Jesus because Jesus is, in very nature, God. Paul goes into even more detail on this. If you're uh, uh, willing at some point um, on your own, take a look at Colossians chapter 1, where Paul goes really even deeper into this. I'm going to give us just a little sn snapshot of it. In Colossians 1, when Paul speaks of Jesus there in verse 15, he says, He is 
the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Everything in the universe has its being and its substance and its order. Everything holds together. We breathe air through our lungs right now because Jesus is doing it. That's how great he is. That's how divine and wonderful he is. And so it would, maybe it would help us to say this morning that if our perception of Jesus, when we, the very first thing we think of Jesus, it shouldn't be the baby in the manger. I mean, we'll, we'll get there eventually. But we shouldn't start there when we think of Jesus with the incarnation. Because when we're speaking of Jesus, we're speaking directly and definitively, definitively of God. He is God. In all his glory and his power, his majesty, his authority, his perfection, all of it applies to Jesus Christ. That's his essential nature. Uh, I've heard somebody say it like this. No matter how high and how lofty your thoughts of Jesus are, they're probably not high enough. No matter how great we think he is, he's, he's even greater than our imagination. And see, all this is what makes the scripture today so incredible. It's not just the affirmation of Jesus' identity as God, but it's what he does as God that really stuns us, okay? And this is, again, this is what makes Philippians 2 so outrageously great. Looking at verse 6, Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what that means is that Jesus, he did not view his own glory as something to be seized for his own advantage, merely for his own enjoyment. If you'll notice this all throughout the Gospels, Jesus performs many signs, many miracles. Never once did Jesus perform a miracle for his own benefit. Never, and that's, that was Satan's temptation, remember? Turn these stones into bread. I know how hungry you are. Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I will not do this, even though I have the power to do it, even though I have a justifiable need, I will not satisfy myself with my divine power. He never did. He didn't seize his glory for his own advantage. He didn't hold on to his divine glory selfishly, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. That's Christmas. That's the Christmas message right there, isn't it? That Jesus emptied himself. Or if you've got an NIV Bible, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, y'all, as we, as we read these verses from a purely human perspective, I know we're in church. But just, just looking at these words as, as rational human beings, this is absurd. This kind of language, it's absurd that the divine, eternal creator of all things 
would make himself a little baby, born into a manger in an obscure, unknown part of the world, in the middle of nowhere to a bunch of nobodies. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks, but that's, that's how the story goes. And he didn't just make himself a baby, but Paul tells us he made himself a bond servant, meaning Jesus comes down to take on a low position for the sake of serving everybody else. He came down to be the lowest of all humanity for the sake of the rest of us. And y'all, there have always been, for 2,000 years now, there have been people who have doubted and denied what we call the incarnation, God becoming man. This story, it can't be true. And the idea that God becomes human, you know, the, the problem that people have with it is not that God couldn't do it, as if he lacked the power. The problem people have is that God surely wouldn't do it. He wouldn't. Under no circumstances would God ever lower himself like this. No way God, in all his glory and beauty and purity, no way would God stain himself by becoming one of us, by stooping down and lowering himself to our level. That's the problem people have. Not that he couldn't, but that he wouldn't. But y'all, again, this is, I mean, this is the unique message of the Christian faith. This is why we're here right now and not somewhere else. That our hope today as Christians, as those who know and follow Jesus Christ, our hope is not that God, because he pitied the world, shined his light in our direction from heaven. That he just kind of shined light at us in hopes that we would catch a glimpse of divine reality and fix all our problems, turn ourselves in his direction. No. The message of our faith is that God came as light into the world by becoming one of us. He came all the way down into the darkness as the light of the world. And y'all, that, that's not just a nice story. That's a necessary thing that God has done. And Paul tells us why it's so necessary. If we look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That is death on a cross, even death on a cross. Well, the, the good news of the gospel is that God, in all his glorious perfection, took on flesh to dwell among us. Jesus lived the perfect life, satisfying all righteousness on our behalf. The godly one in place of the ungodly. And dying on a cross, he died and suffered the condemnation for our sins in our place. Living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we deserve to die. And see, this is how God, in all his wisdom, arranged things. That he didn't leave us to ourselves, lost in the dark, shining a flashlight from heaven in hopes that we might figure things out and respond in our own righteousness. No, instead he enters in. He comes down to a manger. He comes down for a cross. He enters in to be light for us, the light of the world. Now, I, let's just come back for a second to that great story about Ebenezer Scrooge, what we started with. If you know, now, if you don't know this story, it's been around for like 
we're coming up on 200 years, y'all. Okay, so if I'm spoiling this for you, forgive me, all right? But time's up, all right? Lee, Lee, run to the bathroom real quick if you don't know it. But we know what happens next. Ebenezer Scrooge, he's visited by three spirits, right? Past, present, and future. And they show him just how deeply his own greed and selfishness have destroyed people's lives, most especially his own life. How it's brought shipwreck to everything in his life, top to bottom, until finally Scrooge resolves to change. And by the end, he becomes generous. But the change, it doesn't happen in the blink of an eye. It only happens over the course of the story, the more and more he's humbled. The closer down to the ground he gets, the more he recognizes how wretched he's been and his need for change. And in that case, now whether intentionally or not, Charles Dickens actually hits on one of the great truths of Scripture, something we read earlier this morning. With humility of mind, we are to regard others as more important than ourselves. Isn't that what Scrooge learns? In the end, he learns to be humble. He learns his need to be lowly and to esteem others. The Cratchits and the Tiny Tims and the poor and all those around him who need him, he finally gets it, right? But only after he's been humbled. And, you know, if we're honest, and I hope we're, you know, we, we can be honest with our own hearts, ourselves today, this is the part of the story that really ought to capture us and resonate with us because nobody, nobody is naturally obedient to that verse. Nobody naturally considers everybody else more important than me. That's not part of our nature, right? We may, we may now, we, we're not as stingy and selfish as, as Ebenezer Scrooge, maybe, but if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us could stand to be humbler than we are and more generous and less selfish than we are right now. We all know we've got to grow in, in those things because none of us are as we ought to be, which is why things like humility have to be commanded in the Bible. It's not intuitive. It's not natural. We've got to be told to be humble, to consider others more valuable than ourselves, right? We all could stand to grow in that. But here's another place where the gospel, the good news, here in Philippians 2, really ought to shock us. It shocks me every time I come to it. Well, let's read again verses 5 through 7. We've already seen them, but let's look at them again. In their totality, let's look at Jesus Christ. Here's the command, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He had an attitude, a way of life, a way of thinking and being in himself that we're supposed to imitate. What was it? Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the command given to us is, with humility of mind, regard others more important than yourself. Having the same attitude in you, which is also in the heart of Jesus, who, although he is God, he emptied himself to become a man, and as a man, he humbled himself to carry a cross. Now, y'all, serious question. What reason would Jesus have 
to regard anybody as more important than him. Jesus is, by definition, the most important person in the universe. There's nobody that even comes close. What, re what reason would Jesus have to consider others more important than him? What reason would Jesus have to empty himself, to humble himself? See, you and I, me especially, I've got a thousand good reasons to be humble. Probably more. I've got all sorts of reasons why I ought to be humble. Jesus has none. I mean, really, if we think about it, Jesus has not one reason to be humble. There's nothing lacking in him that would cause him shame for his deficiency. There's no sinful pride in Jesus for which he needs to repent. He never had to repent of sin. He never had to backtrack and take back something he said and go apologize to somebody he hurt. Never once did Jesus do anything that required repentance or change. And so we could say it like this, only God... God is the only person in all existence who has no actual need to be humble. God is not obligated to be humble. And yet we see it. This pure and perfect, deep humility right at the very center of his heart. As if it's just part of who he is. This unnecessary thing. Humility. The one person who has no need for it is the one person who models it most purely and beautifully. So much so that Jesus, we're told, poured himself out, considering others more important than him. We're told to have the same attitude that he has. Jesus considered us more valuable than himself. And y'all, this is, this is the good news. I say this ought to shock us just as much as it delights us that Jesus emptied himself without obligation. He didn't have to. He chose to. He took on flesh, born in a manger. He humbled himself to carry a cross, to die. And he did it all, the scripture says, for our sake. Not to complete something lacking in him but out of his perfection, poured out for us so that we might be saved. Now, when, when the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of this, and I, I return to this scripture often, you've heard me preach it probably a good bit if you've been around. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul gives the very same idea, but in different language. Look at this. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, being in very nature God, Yet for your sake, he became poor. He emptied himself. So that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. Isn't that amazing? By faith in Jesus, we who are poor, we're the ones who are really poor, lost and helpless, hopeless apart from grace, we may become eternally rich in the grace of God. Because we have a Savior who willingly impoverished himself, emptied himself to forgive us our sins and to bring us to God. That's the good news. And y'all, during the season of Advent, I mentioned this last week, I'll say it again, Advent means coming, 
we are at the same time celebrating the coming of Christ into the world. That's what today is all about. Jesus taking on flesh to dwell among us. The baby born in Bethlehem. But that's already happened. And so in, at Advent, we have this wonderful privilege to say we're celebrating the coming of Christ as we look back on his incarnation and his death and resurrection. But now as Christians, we also look ahead to his coming again, his return. We live in this, this wonderful middle place that the grace has been given to us. The Son has been born. And yet we also stand on our tiptoes and crane our necks in anticipation for the day he comes again. That's, that's the, the spirit of Advent. And that's also the spirit of the Scripture. Because Paul is not concerned only with what Jesus has done, but what now has come and is coming because of it. And we see that in verse 9, in the remainder of this scripture today, verse 9 says, For this reason also, Jesus having died on the cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Uh, so Jesus doesn't remain in the manger, nor does he remain on the cross. And most certainly he didn't remain in the grave. The one who humbled himself has now been highly exalted, and he will forever be the focal point of all worship. He will be the judge and ruler over all the universe. He will be the one who makes all things new. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And we might say, well, you know, it, Jesus, he had all that stuff to begin with, didn't he? Why, you know, he didn't, he didn't need to come to earth to make all that so. Was, was he not perfect and complete already in heaven before the incarnation? And you know what's interesting about that? I'm not going to get into the deep theology behind all that, but what's interesting when we, if you read through Revelation, when we stand in heaven to worship Jesus Christ, we are going to worship him, not on the basis of the fact that he's God alone, but on what he has done for us. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, the one who came for us and died for us. There's an exaltation that Jesus now enjoys, not just as divine son, but also as savior of the world. And so the exaltation and the worship that he now enjoys and will enjoy is something truly special and unique because he has come and humbled himself. And that's the basis for which we will worship him forever. Not just you're great, but you've saved us by becoming nothing. Right? So much of who Jesus is and his greatness is tied, therefore, to his humility, his death, right? And so we will... Confess Jesus Christ as Lord forever and ever to the glory of God. But not just us. You see what Paul says? Everybody. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You know, I don't want to end on a down note. We're not going to end on a down note, but we just have we need to acknowledge what Paul is saying. Um, everybody. Everybody confesses Jesus as Lord. That means that there are a great many that for all eternity will confess Jesus as Lord with great joy in salvation, but there will also be a great many who will confess him as Lord in regret under judgment. 
And if we ask what makes the difference, what makes the difference? Is it merely a separation between the good guys and the bad guys? Is that how it goes in the end? I want to show y'all as we close what makes the difference here. And let's, let's do it at least initially by revisiting our friend Ebenezer Scrooge one last time. Y'all, if you, if, again, if you remember the story, the three spirits visit Scrooge, but they weren't the first to see him that night. He was visited first by his old financial partner, dead seven years now, a man named Jacob Marley, the first spirit to come and pay Scrooge a visit. And when he enters into his home, He's got heavy chains all over him, dragging the ground, carrying his sins with him now for all eternity, Marley is. And Scrooge becomes so frightened at the thought of facing the very same fate, he says, speak words of comfort to me, Jacob. And Jacob says, I have none to give. And it's only then after the course of the entire night that Scrooge's perspective becomes different, that he changes, right? And only when Christmas morning dawns does he spring out of bed realizing he's been given another chance by the spirits and he runs out the door to do what? He goes to atone for his sins. That's ultimately what he does. He goes to atone for his wrongdoings, to undo all of his wrongs, to change his fate. There's still time left for him to be a good person and to end up uh, differently than his partner has. And what we end up with then, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's a great moral lesson. And one that we ought, I mean, we ought to take to heart because it's not Dickens didn't come up with it. I mean, it's very much biblical that if God gives me breath in this very present moment, he's given me a gift, an opportunity to to do goodness and righteousness and to pursue justice and peace and all the rest, right? To be generous. There's always more time for us, if God grants it, uh, to, to change and to, to live out the goodness that he commands, right? But y'all, that's not the good news. I mean, that's, 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 good. that's a good moral lesson. That's good advice, perhaps, but it's not good news. And see, I, and we wouldn't expect Dickens to get it right. That wasn't the point of the story. But it's the point of this one. Now, the truth is, right now, where we sit, there is no atoning for our sins by our own power. There is no Christmas morning coming that you can run out the door and undo all the wrong you've done. There is no amount of money that you can give. There is no amount of promises you can make that are going to somehow reverse sin's curse in your life and your heart. It just doesn't work that way. There's no changing our fate by resolving to be better. The truth is, our sin runs much, much deeper than all of that. The problem is much more uh, terminal than anything that we can solve by trying to reform our behavior, right? And if we could, let I me mean, just suppose that we could. Even if we could, there'd be no point in Jesus coming. If the message of the Bible was... Uh, God's going to scare you into acting right by whatever means possible. He'll send ghosts if he has to, to change your behavior. If that were the message of the Bible, well, that'd be a much more terrifying book, right? But in the end, in the end, there'd be no point whatsoever to Jesus coming if the power were in you and me to resolve 
our problems, to change our fate, to end up in heaven by our own hands. No, the whole point of Jesus emptying himself for our sake is that salvation comes to us now as a free gift. Not something we can earn by our best efforts, but something we can only receive with open hands. Empty hands, because we have nothing to provide, nothing to bring to the table, not looking to ourselves, but only looking to Jesus Christ, confessing him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is not only our hope and our only hope, but it's God's delight to look at a world covered in darkness, to look at people mired in rebellion and lostness and and hopelessness, and to say, I will solve this problem myself. I will send my son, who will humbly take on a cross for those who cannot save themselves. And so that's why I say Christmas is not the season that only exists to bring out the best in you and me. I hope it does. I mean, it ought to. It's a great time to be generous. It's a great time to consider the things that really matter, right? Yeah. It ought to bring out the best in us. But if we stop there, then we've missed it entirely. Christmas is really about what God has done in bringing his best to us and for us. Because Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not seize onto his glory, but emptied himself and joined this world in a manger and humbled himself to bleed and die on a cross. Because of all of it, God has highly exalted him and we may confess him by faith as Lord and Savior. What a gift we've been given. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for us that we, there would be a great refreshment in our hearts of the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ, that we could joyfully proclaim it and joyfully receive him. Lord, that you, our hope this morning is not to reform ourselves, to get better, to do right. There is no hope in us. And I pray, Lord, that 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 message, as depressing as it sounds perhaps to our ears, is liberating and wonderful and delightful. Because the hope that we have been given is supreme and eternal and, and immeasurably rich and glorious. We have been given your Son to be our Savior. Never again, Lord, to face the prospect of judgment because he has taken our judgment for us. Never again to stare into the darkness and wonder what our future holds because the light of Christ has assured us of an eternal home with you. Never again, Father, to look to ourselves to be justified, to be acceptable, but to look to the one on the cross and behold him who says, it is finished. All has been accomplished now on our behalf. 
I pray, Father, that we would have faith in Jesus this morning to receive Him, to love Him more deeply, to follow Him more closely, to obey Him in love, and to celebrate, Father, at Advent that He has come and He is yet to come again. And we get to walk by faith now in the in-between. I'm asking, Father, for for us in this room right now, for those watching with us online right now, um, Father, enlarge our hearts. Enlarge our view of Christ. Lord, let us hold Him in 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 a more lofty way than ever. To be more devoted to Him, to see Him in all His greatness. Not just a baby in a manger, not just a man on a cross. God himself, glorified forever, willing to share his glorious presence and grace with us (laughs) who could never deserve it. Father, I pray that this, this truth, this grace, would change us top to bottom, inside and out. And, and Lord, let us be, um, of, of all times of the year perhaps, let this be the most opportune for us uh, to really live and speak this grace and this light everywhere we go. Um, thank you for that privilege too. We, we ask these things and celebrate your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.